Thanks, Josh. Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors and uh, delighted to be able to be with you. As Josh said, we're, uh, typically we, we would work through a book of the Bible, but uh, this, this series, we're kind of taking passages that we'll explore um, kind of each week. Um, I want to let you know I, that uh, we're in the process of preparing to launch Redemption Peoria. I think we've, we've told you about that the last few weeks. I had a chance to go out there last, uh, last night, actually. They had a, a core group gathering. They're meeting like once a month with their people that are helping launch it, and, uh, and then people that are joining them. And actually, there was a lady that was there for the first time. She said, it's so great to be here. We're so excited about Redemption Peoria. My mom goes to Redemption Tucson, and we've been driving down there uh, every other week to go to church. And uh, it's so great to have something closer. And I was about to be like, well, Gateway is closer than, <laughs> than that, you know. But, but uh, we're just really excited about what God's doing there and how that will work. And so, again, if you have friends on the West, uh, West Coast, that's how it feels. <laughs> it's a long drive. If you have friends on the West Side, be sure to tell them about that. It's launching February 8th, and uh, we're, we're excited about it. Also, one other thing I want to tell you about, this is in your program, is the Start Here class. It's coming uh, right after the beginning of the year. If you're looking to jumpstart your faith in 2015, this is a class you should take. Or if you're new here and you want to find out, how, how is this church going to help me grow? Uh, you should be in that class. I'd love to meet you there. I'll t- I teach it and would love to get to know you. Um, and we really believe that you can grow by being in these services. But if you want to take a step beyond that, uh, it'll really be catalytic for your faith to develop. So we, we hope you'll join us for that. So this Advent series, Return of the King, uh, the, the word Advent means arrival. It means coming. It's filled with anticipation. Uh, we celebrate Advent because the first Advent, the first coming of Jesus, is what we celebrate at Christmas time. But uh, during this Advent season, the church historically, and this is what we're doing in our series, has looked ahead to the second Advent, to the return of King Jesus, to the time when Jesus will come again. And the reason we need to do that is because this is a world that needs Jesus. This is a world that's hurting. It's a world that's broken. It's a world that's fractured in all kinds of ways. So I love what author Christina Cleveland, she's written a number of books. Here's what she says about this. She says, we've been tricked by chocolate-filled advent calendars and blissful Christmas pageants that gloss over the very real evil that makes the Messiah's coming so very necessary, so very loving, and so very heroic. Advent isn't a holiday party. Advent isn't about our best world. It's about our worst world. Advent is an invitation to plunge into the deep, dark waters of our worst world, knowing that when we resurface for air, we will encounter the hopeful, hovering spirit of God. That's exactly right. Now, I, like, I happen to like chocolate-filled Advent calendars, so I'm not against that. Uh, but her point is exactly right. It's because of the darkness of the world that the light shines so brightly. It's because the world is so fractured and so broken that we long for it to be made new, that we long for it to be made right. I just think a lot, especially over these last weeks and months, as I think about what's gone on in Ferguson and all that that represents, I think about the death of Eric Garner in Staten Island this week and the protests that have emerged from that. And I think about just, just the brokenness in that particular cultural reality, which is that the vast majority, I, I think every black person I've ever talked to has talked about being mistreated by authorities even when it wasn't right. I also know and love a number of police officers who I really don't think are racist, bigoted, out to hurt everybody. And yet there's, there's this reality. All these people in minority cultures can't, can't be wrong that there's a problem, that something's there. 
what do you do with that? How do you fix that? How does that get resolved? There might be some human answers, but I think a lot of what it takes is the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. I don't know how that all gets fractured. Then you think about all the pain that ripples out, just not, not just that, but what goes on in your family, what goes on in your body as your body breaks down. You just think of all of that, and there's just such a need for God's kingdom to come. So I want to take a minute actually and pray uh, for that as we start this message and as we think about these situations. Let's, let's do the only thing really we can do, which is ask for God's help. So let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we do pray that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. God, I, my heart breaks uh, for, um, for the people I know who have experienced injustice and have been wrongly accused or have been mistreated when they weren't doing anything wrong. And so, God, I, I pray for your kingdom to come with healing into those situations. God, I also pray for uh, those in authority, police officers and firefighters and other people who have positions of authority and and who want to represent you well. And so, God, I pray for, for this entire situation, especially for, for followers of Christ among, fi- among police departments and in um, underserved communities. God, I pray that they would be light there. God, I pray that your kingdom would come in those ways, that the churches could rise up and begin to be a model or a preview of what life looks like in the kingdom of God. God, they're big issues. They're complex. They're complicated. They go far beyond any one particular set of circumstances or packet of evidence. It's, it's a bigger thing. And it's just a symptom, God, that reminds us how desperately we need you. So we ask you to come, and we ask you to allow us to be your ambassadors in the meantime. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, last week we began this series, and we did it kind of as an introduction, just trying to make sure we're on the same page of what are we talking about when we're talking about things like the second coming of Jesus or the kingdom of God. And so we said if we're going to talk about the end of the story, the second coming of Christ, we've got to talk about the whole story. We've got to kind of at least go back to the beginning of the story. And so we did that, and, and we call this the true story of the world. This is actually how the world has happened. And so it began with creation. God created everything. He created it very good. He made man and woman in his image. And then something terrible happened. Adam and Eve plunged the world into sin. They broke the one command that God had given them, which was to not eat from that tree. As a result, they were alienated, alienated from themselves. They're hiding in shame, alienated from God. They're hiding from him, alienated from each other. They're blaming each other and pointing fingers, alienated from even creation as as thorns begin to rise up and work becomes toil. Creation fall. How is that going to get resolved? And we said that the Jews expected that a a king would come, a Messiah would come, and as he came, he would bring about this kingdom that would basically restore everything back to the way it was in creation. But where the Jews missed it is that they they didn't realize that that this coming of the king was going to come in phases. It was going to come in stages. That Jesus came to bring redemption. And when he came the first time in his first advent, he announced the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It's broken in. And then he does all these miracles and he does all these teaching. All of that to basically demonstrate this is life in the kingdom. The Spirit of God has come. Healing and renewal and restoration is coming. And it has come. And Jesus goes on to die on a cross, which is something the Jews never expected. They expected a, a king that would come that would triumphantly conquer all his enemies. And what they didn't realize is that that's exactly what Jesus was doing on the cross. Jesus knew that the biggest enemy of the human heart is sin. 
So he went to the cross to die in our place for sin, and he was raised again, and he ascended to his Father's right hand, and then we believe and, and are assured that the kingdom will come in its fulfillment someday as all of creation is restored. Now, we also talked about the place where Americans tend to kind of misunderstand this, and I saw actually some aha moments happen last week and heard from some of you about this, is most Americans have kind of gotten confused about the end of the story. A lot of Americans think it's creation, fall, redemption, heaven. Uh, subtext, I'm out of here, right? And, and, and we talked about how the hope of, of heaven's better than that. It's not just I'm going to fly away into some disembodied, I guess I'm on a cloud, maybe I have a harp, do I look like a baby? I don't know, right? No, no one wants that, right? I, I talked to one guy who said, you know, I've always, I've always felt like I should long for heaven more, but I've never, had a, I've never understood why heaven should be that compelling. It, it doesn't feel anything like what I know. And the reality is, it's going to be wonderful because you're with God. If you were to die and to be with Jesus right now in heaven, that would be terrific. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is that heaven comes to earth. Heaven comes to earth. God renews and restores all things in a tangible, physical existence. I always think, can you imagine Hawaii renewed? Wow, that'd be fantastic. I think, I think when it's all renewed, it will all look like Colorado. That's what the whole place will be. But that's, that's the promise that's to come. We talked about the kingdom of God. We gave a definition last week. This is what we'll continue to use in this series, is that the kingdom of God is God's renewing power, breaking into history by the Spirit to restore his rule over all creation, all humanity, and all nations. That's the kingdom of God. Jesus initiated it in his first advent. He's going to fulfill it in his second advent, in his second coming. So we anticipate this return. We anticipate this restoration. Uh, Romans 8 that we studied months and months ago talked about that, that the creation groans, eagerly anticipating this renewal. We, we, we wait for that. We can't wait for that to happen. But, but here's why. We can't wait for the kingdom because we love the king. See, we don't just want a world without pain and a world without death and a world without grief, as, as great as that would be, right? You could have all that, but if it's a world like that without Jesus, it's not the kingdom of God, right? A, a kingdom always has a king. And so as we focus and anticipate on the kingdom of God coming, one of the things we have to do, and this is what we're gonna do today, is focus on what does it look like to have Jesus as king? We're gonna fix our eyes on him so if his kingdom is ultimately about him, we've got to know, well, what, what does it mean that Jesus is king? Uh, last week for uh, Thanksgiving, we, were, um, we went to San Diego with our family uh, and just had a really great time out there. And on the way to try to make the drive a little shorter, we got the audio book of Chronicles of Narnia. Some of you have heard of that or seen the movies or read the books by C.S. Lewis. And uh, we got the dramatized version uh, where the BBC you know, actors are kind of reading it out. It was really good. We made it through the first two of the books. And in the first book, um, there's this incredible scene where Diggory, uh, who's the, the main boy in that first book, the magician's nephew, uh, he and a girl and a few other people are there at the creation of Narnia. They're in this place and nothing exists. And then they begin to hear a singer. And this singing voice is beautiful. And it gets louder 
and it gets softer. And what they start to see is that a world is being created according to the, the notes of this singer's voice. And they begin to watch this world sort of emerge, sort of bubble up, if you will. And these different things, these different things happen, and they're just absolutely blown away and filled with joy as they're watching this beautiful place get created. But then they see the singer. The singer is the lion, Aslan. And there's a place, this is my paraphrase, where Diggory basically says, this world is amazing, but I can't take my eyes off the lion. And that's how it should be for us. Yes, we want the kingdom to come. Yes, we want all things to be made new. But we can't take our eyes off the lion of Judah, Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to do today. Uh, we're going to look in a, in a few moments at this passage in John chapter 18 where Jesus gives us a glimpse, a glimpse into what it is with him as king. So that's our, our first point. We've got two points today. Jesus is king of kings. And if that's true, we need to obey him. Jesus is king, so we obey him. That's basically the gist of where we're headed. So first, Jesus is king of kings. There's a lot of different descriptions of Jesus. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the Lord. Uh, Jesus, Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ. But one of the, the names, one of the titles that we see of Jesus all through scripture is that he is king. 700 years before Jesus was born in the book of Isaiah was written this amazing prophecy. It's read every Christmas, and here's what it says. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Right, should I keep going? Sorry, I just, sometimes you can't resist when you have a microphone. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So a prophecy 700 years before Jesus that says, a king is coming. It's an eternal kingdom. There will be no destruction of this kingdom. This is a king unlike any other. He's superlative, he's better, he's above all the kings. So that's what's predicted of Jesus before he even comes. Then you fast forward to the end of the story in Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, you get this amazing picture of Jesus. And it's this picture of what he'll look like in his second coming. And uh, as we read this in just a moment, I, I want you to notice, and I've highlighted a few of the phrases that show you th th this reality of king, that Jesus is king. The other thing I want you to notice is how different this picture is than the, the picture of little baby Jesus, meek and mild, in his first coming. Looks very different in his second coming than he did in his first. Here it is, Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. Those are things kings do. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. That's like a crown. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. 
He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And every man in the room said, Amen. I like that. Yeah. Like that, that's not the kind of feather-haired Jesus that I'm used to thinking of in church. Right? This is like UFC Jesus, right, with a tattoo on his leg. Here's the thing. Jesus, in his first coming, he came humbly, came as a baby. And I have a baby at home. I know how helpless babies are. And he came with mercy, and he came with grace, and he came to say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come. And he has ascended to his Father's right hand, and he is waiting patiently to return because the kindness of the Lord is meant to lead us to repentance. But when he comes again, he's coming with a sword. He's coming with judgment. He's coming with the wrath of God against all who will not bend the knee to King Jesus. The point in this, the reason I go to those two passages is just to say all through the scripture, Jesus is described as a king. And when it says he's the king of kings, that's that's meant to be superlative language. There's, There's no one like him, right? The king is the one who has ultimate authority. Right? Or even if, as we use it in sort of more pop culture, where you say, okay, Michael Jackson's the king of pop. There's nobody like him when it comes to music. He's the king of pop. Or James Brown is the king of soul. Right? When we use language like that, we're saying there's no one like that. Right? That's, that's, why, that's the, the, the imagery that comes with king. It's fascinating as I watch my kids. They're uh, eight and six and now just a few months old. And, and, and the older ones, when they play together, very often, someone in the story is a king or a queen. Right? I've never said, hey, what are you guys playing? And they're saying, we play prime minister. <laughs> we play Senate majority leader. Right? Never. Right? Never. Why? Because there's something about a king that captures the imagination of children. There's something about a queen, that sort of power, that sort of sovereignty, that sort of rule. Right? There's a reason why all the Disney movies have it that way, because they know there's something that captures the heart of a child in that. Why? I think it's because we were made for a king and a kingdom. So that taps into that longing that we have. Well, as we get to uh, John 18, go ahead and take a look there. Uh, John chapter 18. What we have here in, in this section of Scripture is that Jesus has been betrayed by one of his followers, Judas. He has then been brought before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, Uh, They've trumped up a bunch of charges and made up a bunch of stuff. They've arrested him because they don't like his message. They don't like him claiming to be God. They don't like him talking about the kingdom of God coming. They don't like that he's friends with sinners. They don't like all these things. And so they trump up these charges. They arrest him. They don't really have the authority to actually kill him, but that's what they want to see happen. And so they deliver him over to Pilate. Pilate is the governor. The, the, The Roman Empire has appointed him as governor over Judea. And he's there. And so if anyone's going to make the call as to whether Jesus is going to be killed, it's going to be Pilate. So Jesus is standing there with Pilate. And in verse 33, Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Do you you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? What are you you hearing, Pilate? Is Is this you asking? Is this what you've been hearing? 
Pilate says, I'm not a Jew. I, I'm not involved in this mess. Just, just tell me. What would you do? And, th- and then in this passage, what we start to see is that Jesus describes that he's a king and that he's a king unlike any other king. We see that he's the king of kings. Right? And so Pilate asks him in verse 35, what have you done? Jesus answers, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Jesus is king of kings. There's no one like him. Jesus is a unique king. And one of the ways that he's unique is that his kingdom is not of this world. Right? You look around at the kings of the world. You look around at the nations. You look around at the rulers. How do they have authority? They have authority by the sword. They have authority through manipulation. They have authority through money. Right? And they use all those things to be able to consolidate and maintain and expand their power. And Jesus says, my kingdom is totally different. It comes from another world. It's not bound to this, this small way that you do it. My kingdom is is God's kingdom. He goes on. Verse 37, Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. I love this. I love this. Right? Not only is Jesus as king unique because his kingdom's not of this world, but he demonstrates it here by, by basically saying, Yeah, you, you said it. I don't even need to say it. Right, I always think about, you've had bosses, or you've had people you've been around who always have to remind you that they're in power. Well, you know, I'm the boss. Well, I'm the charge. Well, I'm the parent, right? And, and, and anytime someone has to remind you that they're the leader, it is an admission that they know they don't have real influence. Right? All they have is power. All they have is authority. But you'd follow them if, if they had real influence. You'll follow them only because they have the power. And Jesus never has to do that. Jesus doesn't have to walk around, hey, 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 call me king. Hey, hey, hey. He just says, are, are you king? Yeah, you said it. Right? He's not on this ego trip. He's not on this, you know, you gotta, you, you gotta see me in a certain way. The scripture says over and over that Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. He wasn't particularly impressed, like worried about impressing people. He wanted to do the will of his father, right? So here you have a king, unlike any other king. Right? His, his kingdom's not of this world. He doesn't have all the insecurity of a, of a normal king. And then finally, you see that this king, ki- kingdom is built on truth. Here's what he says in verse 37. Pilate said to him, so you're king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. So, Not only is Jesus unique because his kingdom's not of the world and because he doesn't need all the accolades of everybody else, but it's unique because it's built on a different foundation. It's built, he says, on truth, right? That's what he says. This purpose I was born, for this purpose I've come into the world. That's a big statement. Jesus is saying, here is why I came. Here is why I'm here. Here is what my kingdom's about. Bearing witness to the truth. He says, everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate said to him, "Uh, what is truth? And I just find this such an interesting contrast about the kingdom that's not of this world that's built on truth versus the kingdom of the world that's based on relativity and preference and popularity. Right? Pilate goes, well, (laughs) you know, I've been in politics a while. 
Like, what's truth? Truth is in the eye of the beholder. Ah, oh, it's true for you. It might not be true for you. Let's do a poll. Let's test it. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Here's what's true. These are the facts of the case, and they cannot be disputed. That's how Jesus comes. Jesus comes with authority all throughout his ministry. It says people listen to him. They say, wow, this, this teaching is like one that has authority. Why? Because Jesus' kingdom is built on truth. This is what really is the case. You really were created by God. You really have been plunged into sin by nature and by choice. You really do need a savior. And I really am coming back again to judge the world. That's the truth. That's what my kingdom is built on. I'm a king unlike any other king. Well, if that's the case, right, if this is who Jesus is, and this is what his kingdom's like, and this is what we're anticipating, then how should we live right now? How should we kind of live into and lean into this kingdom, right? Because I think one of the the, the realities of of a series like this is we could start to go, man, it'll be great someday when the kingdom comes. Well, but is there a way to get a taste of it now? Is there a way that we could experience some of it now? Yes. So here's what it is. Here's our second point. Is that anticipating the kingdom equals obeying the king. If you hear all of this talk about Jesus and about his kingdom, you go, yes, I want that. Yes, I can't wait for that to come. Well, listen, you can have a taste of it now because anticipating the kingdom is obeying the king. It's surrendering to Jesus as Lord. Here's what he says in the end of verse 37. He says, I, you know, he says, I, I came to bear witness to the truth. And then he says this, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. I came to declare the truth, to bear witness about the kingdom. Everyone who's of the truth, everyone who's of the kingdom listens to my voice. They just hear it, or what does that mean? It means they they listen and they do what it says. I want you to keep your finger there and go to your left into John 10, a number of chapters back. In John chapter 10, Jesus is talking about how he's the good shepherd. And all in John chapter 10, there's these constant allusions to Ezekiel 34, where God is rebuking the kings, get this, the kings of Israel, and telling them, you've been lousy shepherds, you kings. And so Jesus comes in chapter 10 and he says, I'm the good shepherd. I laid down my life for the sheep, which is basically saying, I'm not just a shepherd, I'm a king. I'm the true king that Israel has been waiting for. And in that particular passage, and using that kind of imagery in John chapter 10, verse 27, here's what he says. Notice how similar this sounds to what he says to Pilate. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Everyone who's of the truth, everyone who's of my kingdom, everyone who's part of my flock, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Do what I say. I think about the imagery of a shepherd. Come here. Heal. Right? Come. They come. So, to anticipate the kingdom to anticipate the coming of Jesus is to live with him as king now. How do you do that? 
You hear his voice and you do what he says. You obey him. That's what Jesus is talking about. And here's the thing. This is a better way to live, right? If the thing we anticipate and love about the coming kingdom is we go, oh, that's a world that's unlike our current world. That's, that's the world, the way things were supposed to be back in creation. Well, then following Jesus, leaning into his kingdom, is saying you're going to get a taste of his kingdom now. It's a better way to live. You can stay in, in John chapter 18, but I want to uh, put on the screen a passage from Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, Jesus talks about this same kind of idea, and here's what he says. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? I, I love that question, and I really am kind of bothered by that question. Aren't you? Right? Don't you have these times you go, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, I love you. Yeah, well, then obey me. Why didn't you do what I said? There's another place where Jesus says, if you love me, you obey my commands. Right? It's like with your kids when they're like, oh, I love you, Daddy. Okay, well, then pick up your room. Well, no, but I love you. No, 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 no. Right? It, it, it's, it, it's, it's troublesome. You can kind of hear some of the frustration maybe in Jesus' voice. But then he says this. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Here's what I love about Jesus. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? But then what does he do to appeal to us to do what he says? I'll tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Do what I say, dang it. <laughs> right? He's the king. He has all the authority to do that. But he doesn't. Instead, he appeals to our desire. And he says, listen, if you do what I tell you to do, it's a better way. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and, and not do what I say? Listen, if, if you do what I say, you're like a person that builds a house on a solid foundation. It doesn't matter what kind of storms bump up against it. You're fine. If you hear what I say and you don't do it, it's like building your house on sand. You're going to crumble when everything falls apart. So you get what Jesus is saying? He's not just saying, do it because I'm the king. He's saying, do it because I love you. Do it because this is better. Do it because you'll get a taste of the kingdom of God that you're longing for. You anticipate the kingdom? You want God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven? Then obey Jesus. Okay, well, what does it look like to obey Jesus, right? The Bible seems thick. It seems like there's a lot of commands. Can you boil it down? Well, yes, we can. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love God with everything, love your neighbor as yourself. So what if we begin to use that as a grid? Okay, so what would it then look like if we were going to obey Jesus? Well, it first would look like that we would love God. Right? That's what Jesus said was the first and greatest commandment. Okay, well, just think of an example. If we're loving God, well, what if you were a person that was marked by prayer? What if your love for God was so obvious that everyone who knew you, when they, when they introduced you or when they thought of you, they would think, man, that's a person of prayer. 
They, they don't depend on themselves. They depend on God. Their first flinch, whether things are good or bad, is to praise God and thank him and trust him. What if that was you? What if you obeyed God like that? Or what about, as we think about loving our neighbor and loving other people in our lives, what about loving family? What about this? What if those closest to you saw Christ the clearest? Right? Some of you grew up in homes and religious environments where your parents were one way on Sunday and one way every other time. What if your family, those closest to you, could see Christ the clearest in you? Or extend it. What about actually loving our neighbor? What if we move toward, what if you move toward those who are different from you rather than away? What if rather than responding with fear, you responded with relationship? What if you saw people in need and you saw people in pain and you saw people in poverty and you moved toward them rather than away or rather than just standing still? That's what it is to love your neighbor. That's what it is to obey Jesus. That's what it is to anticipate the kingdom. It's to do those things, to move in that direction. Are you moving there? One, one just small way, one little like jumpstart, kickstart kind of way is that's why we do a Christmas offering. We know that our hearts follow our money, our hearts follow our treasure, and so we're doing a Christmas offering again this year to benefit foster care and to benefit some benevolence funds for people inside and outside of our church who are in need to try to build a church building in Turkey with one of our partners. We're, we're doing that because it's, it's helping us lean in. It's helping us build some compassion muscles. It's a way to start. What about loving the church, loving our church family? What if your brothers and sisters in the church actually felt like brothers and sisters? What if your love for them, your commitment to them, your prayer for them, your concern for them, your diligence for them was so significant that it actually felt like you owned that relationship like family? Listen, when Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say, that's the stuff he's talking about. Loving him, being a person marked by prayer. Loving family, loving your neighbor, loving the church. Now, I don't know about you, but I look at that and go, I don't think I'm very good at obeying the king. Pretty sure that those closest to me would not say, as one of the defining characteristics, Luke's really a, a go-first-to-prayer guy. I don't know if, if my family all the times would say, you know, I see, I see Christ the clearest from him. Not just when he's on stage, but at home. When I think about neighbors, and I think about those different than me, to be honest, I, I've got to do some real thinking to go, how, how much relationship do I have with people in real serious poverty? People who are really different than me. My guess is you're probably like me. We're not all that good at loving our neighbor like that. Think about loving the church. It's easy to love those who love me, but love everybody that way? I don't know. It's hard. And maybe that's why we're so often looking a lot like the kingdom of the world rather than Jesus' kingdom. Maybe that's often why we're experiencing all the same anxiety and discouragement in the world because we aren't tasting that. So we've got to ask, well, what if I can't obey the king like that? And this is why I love reading the rest of the story. So go back to John 18. 
After Pilate says what is truth in verse 38, he goes back. It says, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. This guy's done nothing wrong. You've, you've propped up this stuff. I don't find any guilt in him. And Pilate, this is his way of kind of trying to weasel out of it. Verse 39. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Right? Pilate says, hey, you've got this thing. Every year I pardon somebody. Right? I let him go. How, this guy's done nothing wrong. How about I release the king of the Jews? And they say, not this man, but Barabbas. We want Barabbas. Kill the king of the Jews. Kill Jesus. We want Barabbas. And then it says, now Barabbas was a robber. You may have a footnote there. It also could be translated an insurrectionist. He led rebellions. He's, like a, he's leading like a terror cell. And the crowd says, we want him instead of Jesus. We want the guy who does it wrong. We want the guy who doesn't acknowledge Jesus as king. Let Jesus die and let him go. Listen, if you're hearing all this and you're hearing, you need to obey Jesus. You need to, if you're gonna experience the kingdom, you need to obey him. And you go, gosh, I'm overwhelmed by that. I, don't, I can't do it. Listen, you are Barabbas. And Jesus was killed so that you could go free. You are the guilty one. And to the degree that you think, no, I'm the holy one, is the degree to which you're going to go, no. But if you will acknowledge, I'm Barabbas, I'm guilty, I don't love God like I should, I don't love my family like I should, I don't love my neighbor or the church like I should, I failed at that. To the degree that you acknowledge that, then the kingdom of God actually comes into your life as you realize you're a guilty sinner and Jesus has died in your place. And then your heart is filled with gratitude. And then your heart is filled with joy. And then you're reminded that you love this king. And then you're motivated to start to obey in ways that you couldn't do before. And you have the power of his spirit in you to do it. And you don't do it perfectly, but you do it motivated with gratitude and love and trust in Jesus Christ. And as you do that and you walk out in that faith, you are experiencing a foretaste, a preview of the kingdom of God. Listen, get this straight. This is big. We don't usher in the kingdom of God. Jesus does that. We don't bring in the kingdom of God. Jesus does that. But we can be signposts of the kingdom of God. We can have a preview. We can have a foretaste of the kingdom of God as we trust and obey Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son to be our king. And God, we pray that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that it would start with us in this room, with your church, that we would be set on fire with the love of Christ, that we would see what Christ has done for us, that it would fill us with gratitude that he has died in our place, that we would then walk out in obedience and love you and love our neighbors and love our family and love one another in such a way that it would be a preview, a foretaste, a coming attraction of the kingdom of God. Help us to live like that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.